You're listening to the Pro Bono Happy Hour. I'm Rena Glazer. Welcome back. Today's guest is Ellen Joseph from Vincent and Elkins. We discuss the pro bono culture in Houston, where Ellen is based, and the site of Super Bowl 51, which is rapidly approaching. Her career, the firm's pro bono program, pro bono efforts to support Holocaust survivors, virtual pro bono clinics, and more. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Hi, Ellen. Welcome. Thank you so much for joining us today. It's a pleasure. Thank you so much for asking. Let's jump right in. Could you tell us about your background and how you got to Vincent and Elkins? Sure. I grew up in Houston, Texas, which is where I'm, I'm still working now. Um, and I know this sounds crazy, but I have always wanted um, to do public interest work. So I went away to school um, for college and for law school. And when I, my whole goal was to find that job where I could be a lawyer um, for people who couldn't afford lawyers. So um, after law school, I did, um, I had about a year at a law firm doing some general litigation um, until I found the perfect public interest job. So I was um, the domestic violence staff attorney at a legal clinic here in Houston for about six years. And then after I left there, um, one of my very dear friends who I grew up with in Houston, um, who was at Vincent and Elkins, reached out that they were looking to professionalize their pro bono program and asked if I'd be interested in applying to be their first pro bono counsel. Now, what is it either in your background or your personality that sparked that desire to um, do public interest work and your passion for equal access to justice? I'm sure my parents would really like to know the answer to that. This is this has just been how I think it was how I was born. It's how I um, have been wired. My parents and grandparents who I um, grew up very close to have been teaching us about justice and fairness and standing up for those who can't stand up for themselves since before I can remember. And so I just always assumed that that's what I would do as a as a profession also. And um, that is really, I think, what led to my feeling of access to justice. It really is just by luck of birth um, about the family that I entered into who prioritized education and I had a safe home and a safe neighborhood. And so I never really thought those should be um, products of luck. So I have made it my life's work to make sure that luck is as, as little a part of it as possible and that everyone gets the same opportunity that I had. Really, it surprises me more when, when people aren't in this line of work. It's so, it, it seems so obvious to me that that's where um, my, my passion is and that's where, my, um, where I belong. I like that. It's a bit of a nature-nurture story. <laughs> <laughs> And the combination. It is. We'd like to learn a little bit more about your firm and the pro bono program. Could you provide an overview? Sure. Um, Vincent Elkins has um, a little over 700 lawyers in um, six domestic offices as well as international offices. Um, we are general service, regular law, big law firm. We do, um, we're relatively evenly split between litigation and corporate, have a large energy practice. Um, which is probably obvious given our largest offices in Houston and our home base and where we, where we were founded. And the, the pro bono culture really started at the same time as the firm. We are celebrating this year our 100th anniversary. So 1917, Vincent and Elkins was formed. And really, since the beginning, lawyers at VE have been handling important pro bono cases, such as making sure juries were racially just back before that was um, guaranteed representing um, defendants 
pro bono representing um, people in, in all sorts of areas of life since the beginning of the firm. And I think that's what made it just part of its culture. Um, it is an incredibly entrepreneurial place in its billing work and in its pro bono work. So it, the pro bono the pro bono culture really follows the culture and there are people in every level of their career from first year associate all the way through very senior partner um, coming up with new pro bono ideas and initiatives and, and staffing them and working on them. And it's really um, just been a pleasure to see how it's just been a natural part of the lawyer's career here at Vincent and Elkins. Well, happy anniversary to you well, and the firm. You. We will drill into some of those initiatives um, in a few minutes. But first, could you tell us about how you spend your time? What are your days like? Sure. Well, I spend a huge amount of time um, monitoring our current pro bono projects. So making sure that our the individual matters are plugging along. So answering individual questions from from lawyers about their individual cases, looking at our larger projects. We have a, an expunction project with a veterans treatment court. We have virtual clinics that always need staffing. Um, we have a guardianship project, all the things we'll talk about in a little bit. I'm make, you know, checking on those projects, checking with the providers, checking with the lawyers who are working on them, making sure all, everything is being handled and responding to their inquiries. And then I spend the rest of the time really trying to drill in in our communities where the needs are, where we could create programs, talking with um, NGOs, legal service providers, um, stakeholders really in the community who can tell me where they need lawyers in all of the different communities. So creating new and different and innovative projects to meet those needs. Um, and that really includes meeting, really talking to my lawyers, our lawyers, to figure out where their passions are and try and, and make those matches. Is there anything that you wish you could be doing more of if you had more time? Well, I, I really do think that I would, I, I, I would spend any extra time I had talking with providers and getting to know my lawyers. So I, I think any additional time I spend talking about where the needs are and finding out what v and &E lawyers want to do and what drives them is what's going to increase and improve our pro bono program. So that's where I spend any additional time, and that's where I would continue to spend any additional time. One of the things that's been so incredible in this role is the, my role in, in ABCO, which is the Association of Pro Bono Counsel. And so that has really, I sit on the board of that organization and that is, it, is, it represents all of the um, pro bono counsel, those who manage pro bono programs in the firms across the country. We have about 100, I think 120 members, about 80 firms, and um, we do, we, over the last several years, have done a lot more collaborating on actual substantive projects as well as messaging out to the community and in the, in the way that we professionalize pro bono. And I think that if it's a way I have spent more and more time over the past few years into that organization and getting wonderful things out of it. So I think um, the collaboration among the firms and between the firms has been a really positive force. And so I do spend um, quite a bit of time with those, that programming too. And I think it's really enhanced um, our individual pro bono program. We like to say that law firms can be competitors in the marketplace and collaborators in pro bono. So I think that- Absolutely. They, I think there's a huge strength in our working together um, to combine resources, both human and financial, um, to really tackle some of the, the big issues out there. What are your favorite parts of your job? Well, I think- my absolute favorite part has been the same as my favorite part um, of representing clients 
since I took I took my first client as a as a, a law student clinic participant is um, the personal connection of working through and trying to help someone through a tricky situation and seeing it to the end. And that that relief is really what it, it feels like to them. Um, and that and and that feeling of being listened to and being re, uh, respected and represented. I think that will always be my favorite part of pro bono work. Um, because I am doing less and less of the direct service, I get to see that joy and that gratification transferred to our lawyers. Um, so I don't see it quite as much anymore personally, but I, I, I get to expand our lawyers and how they do that work. And seeing now some of our associates have that same feeling of, of the incredibly grateful, relieved um, client who otherwise would not have had a path forward and being able to know that that's the best part of the work and, and encourage others to get that feeling out there um, is probably my favorite part. And on the work side, on the substantive side, my favorite part really is creating a new program, you know, figuring out, you know, our guardianship program was a good example of that. And that really came from um, my experience in a legal clinic. We did a lot of the guardianship work in Texas. And I spent some time at Texas Children's Hospital with my daughter who was having surgery. And I saw kids who were really getting older and, and probably aging out of, um, of childhood. And I, I, I wondered how all of these families really need to get guardianship over these very disabled children. And I didn't know what the hospital did. So I reached out to the hospital and we created a guardianship program where we would help these families who couldn't afford lawyers get guardianship over their, their children. And it was a part of the program that the, that the hospital would provide our information and the program information um, as a service that they provided. That Creating a program like that that actually works and has an impact and helps you feel more protected is, is probably a, a close second. So you're a grower, right? You like to start and create things. And in some ways, I wonder if you get double the pleasure through some of the, your vicarious enjoyment of seeing your lawyers handle pro bono matters. So you see, you see the gratification of the client being helped, and then it's sort of squared by seeing your lawyers be involved. You know, it's kind of like when you see your kids flourish. You know, you That's see- exactly right. <laughs> and, to, and to watch our lawyers recognize that that's something that they can do and they can do for others and to get that feeling. Um, the second pro bono matter is very easy to sell. So from a selfish perspective, watching them have that gratification and that real professional feeling of satisfaction only enhances our pro, our pro bono program in general, um, because that next matter is not going to be difficult to staff with them. So let's talk a little bit more about the guardianship project since you brought that up. What, sure. What's its state now? Sort of who's being served? Where does it operate? Um, what, what's going on with it these days? Sure. So we are still, we still are handling the same cases um, with Texas Children's Hospital. It has become part of a larger program that a medical legal partnership with Houston Volunteer Lawyers. So we, we are now part of that program. So the guardianships go to a, a larger segment of lawyers. Um, we are still handling the same or more of them, um, but it's actually been professionalized even more through an actual um, a program with an attorney at Houston Volunteer Lawyers. It's really wonderful. Um, and so we still do um, probably 10 of those guardianship cases a year in Houston. And after we did it in Houston for a couple of years, we had actually expanded our guardianship program to Dallas 
uh, where we worked with the Texas Scottish Rite Hospital for Children doing sort of the same thing. So we still do probably, I don't know, five to 10 of those cases a year through that hospital in Dallas. Um, and we have done a handful of these kind of cases in New York. What we were trying to do is one of the things that, that our lawyers were passionate about is helping families um, with, with kids with special needs. And so one of the, the, the most obvious ways we can do that and one of the u- most uniform ways we can do that is we can handle guardianship cases in, in as many offices as we can. So that's what we're trying to do. Um, we have now, which I'm very proud of, expanded that program. Texas law changed a couple years ago to provide for a new form of guardianship. One of the things, one of the difficulties in Texas is families either had to have a full guardianship over their, their child or who they were taking care of or no guardianship. And so some children, some adults don't aren't fully incapacitated, but might need some assistance and some things. And so Disability Rights Texas, their legal director, Richard Lavallo, created a new mechanism and, and the legislature passed it, with, which is an assisted decision-making program. And so we hosted the first clinic of its kind in Houston where we helped, and this is really aimed at higher functioning um, adults who might need additional help. And so we're really trying to see that the the growing need for um, families with kids on the autism spectrum who might not need a full guardianship, that population is growing so much. And so we wanted to see if we could expand our guardianship program to meet the need. And so we did that in the spring, and we're going to do another one um, the first week of May. And um, it's been it, we helped 19, I think 16 families the first time. Um, and it's really, it's innovative. No, no one... There's nowhere else for these families to get this help except through Disability Rights Texas. And without B&E's volunteer lawyers or the other law firms who are volunteering with them, they have no way to help all of these families that while there is this wonderful mechanism, if we don't get volunteers out there to help these families, they can't utilize it. So we're really proud of where the guardianship is, even in its regular state, helping the same families, doing the same kind of work individual at a time. But we're also really excited about that we have shifted our program to also include this, this new program to help more families. That's wonderful. Thank you for sharing. I love the example of an evolving program, right? <laughs> Needs yep. change, laws change, lives change, and we can't just be doing the same pro bono work. Um, That's right. And it was important to us that we continue to do the work for the families who do need the full guardianship. Um, because we did not want them to be left behind. There will continue to be a need for that. Um, but when the laws changed, for example, with that same law that pr- provided for that new mechanism, now the lawyers have to do a four-hour training in order to handle a guardianship, any guardianship. And so we had to build into our program a training mechanism. A, we use a, the state bars DVD that we provide to our lawyers as soon as they take a case so that we can make sure that they're trained up right away. Um, so we have had to really shift and adjust um, to not only the changing law but the change and the changing population, um, but even the professional development of it has changed a little bit. So um, that's what I think is so important for firms to have a pro bono counsel, to be spending that time trying to figure out how that program can shift and adjust to changing times and structures. I think it would be very difficult um, without a full-time pro bono counsel keeping track of that to do that. Now, you mentioned 
um, a great group, Houston Volunteer Lawyers. Generally speaking, could you tell us a little bit about the pro bono and access to justice culture in Houston? Sure. Houston um, is a very uh, robust and diverse city and for, for its populace and its lawyers. And so there are incredible organizations here in Houston, Houston Volunteer Lawyers being our major umbrella organization. Um, there are a ton of immigration organizations. There are a ton of um, domestic violence organizations, disability rights organizations, civil rights organizations. And what's so great is it's a, it's a really um, exciting culture of pro bono and people and organizations who really want to help and work together. And, and what has been so great over the last few years, which maybe wasn't true in the beginning, those organizations have really started to work together and collaborate. Um, a great example of that is the Houston Immigration Collaborative, which is all the immigration organizations getting together and working on systemic changes and programming and, and really trying to build on everybody's resources. Um, but what I will say is the need in Houston is so great. Um, so we always need more lawyers donating more time, more money for our nonprofits and legal service providers, more funding for our legal aid lawyers. So it's an incredible culture, and I think it's very bustling, and, and, and lawyers really do want to give back, and the organizations are great at training and providing that service, but we just need more. The, the need is, has been overwhelming. What do you think, just your gut instinct, right, not, not from a survey or data or, or anything analytical, <laughs> but what do you think are the one or two most unmet legal needs? Family law and immigration. The, you know, wh one, of the, one of the reasons I think that I ended up at this job um, at V&E was that I did have a family law background. Um, that, was what I, that was the work I did at the legal clinic, um, was in domestic violence work in the family law context. That need is, is, is always going to be there to represent people who cannot afford lawyers in their sticky family law situations. Um, the Texas Supreme Court has promulgated some forms to make the, the easier cases more accessible so that we don't need lawyers as much for those and we can reserve our pro bono and public interest in legal aid lawyers for the more complicated issues. Um, but I just, it, that, that need I think will always be there. Um, and then the immigration issue, it's, you know, because of our geography and location and highway system and a variety of things that I've learned in trainings as to, as to why there is so much immigration need here, um, that, that seems to hold true. And in addition, the, um, I really do think that the small business aspect of Houston is, is where we're going to see a lot of need. Um, we've started to expand our pro bono program to include a, a small business program. Um, we really see that if we, if we enhance the access to lawyers that small businesses have and those businesses become more successful in underserved communities, that it can raise up the whole community um, and really have a big impact. So I, I think those are probably the three areas where I think there's a tremendous need. Um, but I, and, and I have said, and I continue to say, you know, we're only probably meeting already in Texas the data that I've seen about 20% of the need in our state um, with the funding that we all, we, we have right now. And so I'm very concerned about um, always trying to increase that funding for programs because without these public interest programs and legal aid agencies, um, the lawyers 
would be really lost. They get a lot of the training and the support and the backup and the screening with these organizations. So not only do I think we can't cut any of that funding, we, we need more and more. Absolutely. Um, I want to switch gears a little bit and talk about one of the great innovative projects that you've created, virtual pro bono clinics. Could you tell us what they are? Sure. And, you know, it's, there's been a lot written about these clinics and I've talked a lot about them and it always feels, um, it, it sometimes feels a little dirty because this was really a, um, what I thought of as a, as a selfish move to try and figure out how to, how to solve a problem in a way that makes it easier for our lawyers, but it really has had um, incredible unintended or I guess intended consequences that I, was, I wasn't as positive about. So what was happening in Houston was Houston Volunteer Lawyers staffs tons of clinics every Saturday. They're intake brief legal advice clinics all over the city of Houston in, in underserved communities and community centers. And all of our law firms, our local law firms, um, commit to staffing and sponsoring those clinics. And there are so many. What I was noticing when I was trying to staff these clinics is that it was getting harder and harder to find lawyers that were willing to, to do this sort of out of office activity, even though it was a Saturday, a lot of them would otherwise be at the office or they, they didn't want to seem unavailable or anything like that. And then when I would be at these clinics, when we did staff them and I would see the lines were just growing longer and longer. And I thought, you know, our lawyers, we're having less and less lawyers sign up and more and more clients show up. And this is just a recipe for people not getting enough access to justice. So I reached out to Houston Volunteer Lawyers and I said, is there any way that we can talk, do these same intake clinics, these same brief legal advice and counseling um, via Skype? And we, we thought there would be an obvious reason why we couldn't, because it, but, but there wasn't. So in 2011, we launched our virtual clinics. And what we do is when, when clients when potential clients call Houston Volunteer Lawyers for intake, and they, they usually say, well, we have a Saturday clinic coming up near you. At this, on this date, you should go there. So now, on a quarterly basis, they, when they get those calls, they reserve 15 or 20 um, to come on a Thursday afternoon to their offices instead of on a Saturday to the legal clinics. And a lot of people really prefer that. Um, it handles some child care issues at their school and all of that. And then I have lawyers at V&E um, usually four or five lawyers in their offices for a few hours, just available for the Skype call. And so what happens is the Skype, the, the Houston volunteer lawyers will send an email to one of our lawyers who volunteered and said, in five minutes, you'll be connected to Jane Doe, who has this kind of problem and here are the papers she brought. And then they do a brief intake and general advice um, session with her and send attorney notes back to HVL. And, and it works very similarly to a live clinic that way. So we have been doing that since 2011. We have now expanded those clinics and created a small business clinic model with the city of Houston Office of Business Opportunity, where we have corporate lawyers sign up to do the very same thing, brief legal advice and counseling, but for small businesses. Um, and I had a call yesterday to maybe expand this virtual clinic to an immigration setting where Lawyers from all of our offices can be available to do um, some, some work with an immigration organization who might need some unbundled services that they can handle via consultations over Skype. So it, I really see a huge potential um, for increasing access to justice, and it's been, um, it's been a real success here at the firm because I, 
I really think lawyers are increasingly anxious about being away from their office, and this allows them to really um, do the pro bono work they want to do, but maintain the availability that they feel like they need. Um, and so it's just been, it's been kind of a win-win for us. That's great. I think we are all spending a lot of time thinking about how to use technology to enhance access to justice. And yes. sometimes there are pitfalls or challenges, but obstacles can be overcome. There are creative solutions and people are engaged in a lot of meaningful innovation. And then you learn and things can be replicated and tweaked. And it's a really great model. And it's really, I think it's very powerful um, to, for for people in poverty to have not just the access to justice, but the access to technology. Um, because if we do not make that wholly available to everyone and, and um, we're leaving behind segments of the population who won't be able um, to participate in certain aspects of our life. So um, it, it really, it used to be like when this first came up, we were concerned about clients being uncomfortable with computers and computer screens. And we didn't want this process to be any more uncomfortable than it already is to meet with a lawyer. Um, but what we're seeing is that people are increasingly more comfortable with technology. Um, and so this has become less of an issue and, and more of just a, an easy way to get someone some access that they would otherwise not have. That's a really interesting observation. And I'm Wondering if some of it is generational, right? So for there is some, there is some, there's for sure some generational. Um, there is a generational aspect to it for sure. Um, but and we have really tried hard to ask the providers we work with to make sure to continue to make sure that our clients are comfortable with the with the operations. You know, I, if if they would rather a live client clinic, I want them to go to a live client clinic. We still do attend and sponsor those. Um, so I don't want to make people uncomfortable, but we, we, what we hear is that people are actually thrilled to engage. And we had one, one of our clinics had, we've had several where this is their first time using Skype. This is their first time um, really using, a, you know, the internet that way to communicate. Um, and instead of it being overwhelming and scary, it's been a positive experience. Um, so, you know, we, we really have, um, it's become very much a staple and sort of a foundation of our program. Um, which is really neat. Yeah, very cool. One prominent activity that you've been involved in were efforts to obtain reparations from Germany for eligible Holocaust survivors. Could you tell us about your experiences doing pro bono work on behalf of Holocaust survivors and a little bit about the Holocaust Survivor Justice Project? Sure. There, there, there's nothing like it. There has been nothing in my career like representing Holocaust survivors. Um, and, and I really haven't ever participated in a program like the Holocaust Survivor Justice Network in, in the way that it was created and developed and um, in, in such an incredible way. So just for some background on the, on the project, in 2007, Germany um, approved a new reparation, which was a one-time um, 2,000 euro benefit for Holocaust survivors who had performed work in the ghettos that were Nazi-controlled during the Holocaust. And so this was really incredible because there had been an old program that tried to help ghetto workers, but it was uniformly unsuccessful um, because of a variety of, of, of legal issues with it. And so almost everyone was denied. And so this was a new way to be able to give a one-time payment to people. So BetSedek, which is an organization in Los Angeles, um, that means House of Justice, took this on. And 
they started doing and helping survivors fill out the form necessary and go through the process. And what they realized is they're, they can't just do this in Los Angeles. They're going to be Holocaust survivors all over the country. So what they did is they created a network of lawyers. They reached out across the country. They, um, they, what they got was, um, I forget the name they used, oh, coordinating law firms in each of the major cities and participating law firms. So we participated in Dallas, New York, and Washington, because those were our other cities, but we were the coordinating firm in Houston with Wild Gottschall. And what we did was we worked with our local um, Jewish Family Service, Holocaust Museum, or other Holocaust survivor um, support groups, and did some outreach and said, basically, are you guys aware of this program? We want to help you. And so we had, starting in 2008, clinics at our local Holocaust Museum where Holocaust survivors could come and meet with a lawyer, go over a very extensive application where they had to talk about um, their their persecution story, how, what the work that they performed, how they got that work, their whole story from beginning to end, how they got out of persecution, and um, submit that to Germany. And so we did, I, I, I can't even think, of, I think we did six clinics. And then since then, we have um, we have helped individuals one off, you know, if we get a call now, we'll go do a home visit or something like that. And after that, then Germany tried to revamp their old um, ghetto pension program. So we added that. So we, we've helped, I don't know, I, I think between 50 and 75 Holocaust survivors. Um, we have been successful in all but one. Um, in trying to get Germany to uh, give the reparations that are so deserved. It is one of the most powerful things that I've ever done is to sit down with a Holocaust survivor, hear their story, and try to offer a, um, a solution to um, maybe some financial issues. What I didn't know, um, I knew a whole lot about the Holocaust growing up as a Jewish kid in Houston. We had Holocaust survivors in our family. I have Holocaust survivors in my family. I had Holocaust survivors come and speak to me all the time. I knew all sorts of stories. Um, but I, had, I did not know that 40% of United States Holocaust survivors live in poverty. And so while 2,000 euros doesn't seem like a lot of money, it really did go a long way in helping with rent and medication and food for a lot of our clients who were really struggling financially. Um, and I just felt like a very... Um, I felt an incredible amount of pressure to keep their story accurate and powerful as it was um, and to advocate for their, um, their reparation in Germany felt like an incredible responsibility. We have volunteer lawyers all over Houston representing these survivors, and there, there, wasn't, there wasn't a single participant that wasn't moved to the point of tears at some point, of elation at another, um, but there were some challenges. You know, some of the challenges are that um, a lot of survivors are very distrustful of Germany. They did not necessarily want to give Germany all of the information that Germany was asking for. They felt that the reparation was minor in compared to what they deserved. They thought that um, some of the language used in the statute, they had to prove that the work was voluntary. That was offensive to many of our survivors. So it wasn't without its challenges, but personally and professionally, it was an incredible way to give back to a community that we don't often think of as a, um, as a segment of our pro bono population. 
So it was, I, I know that was probably too much, but it was one of the most powerful things. And we're still doing it. I still have two clients that I'm waiting to hear from. I've done a tremendous amount of follow up on. Um, so we still continue to do them. They just, unfortunately, we've helped the large percentage of the folks that, that qualify and that population is not growing. <laughs> so we, we still get calls here and there, but, um, but we think that work is tapering off now. It's, it's, it's a wonderful and meaningful project um, that, that really makes a difference. It's had a profound effect, not just on the people being served, but definitely on the people who've provided services. Um, yeah. Very formative. And from the get-go, it was a really meaningful project for us at the Pro Bono Institute because our founder, Esther Lardent, was the child of Holocaust survivors. She was born in a dis placed persons camp. So we were sort of very closely connected to the project, the people at BetSedec, the network around the country, around the world. So I really thank you for sharing your experience. And and it was a wonderful, wonderful model of how it was really one of the first, um, and I think it, it, it was held up as an example that we've used in future projects of law firms um, coordinating and working together, sharing resources um, to provide this incredible service. And so it was, I think, very eye-opening for the pro bono community to, to see that no one had to own this project. We just had to get as many lawyers as we could, as quickly as we could, to represent as many survivors as we could um, before, you know, time ran out. And so it, it, was, it was like a race from the start to just help as many people as we could. And I think that the energy we got from that was really powerful. Um, and one of the things that I, you know, like I said, growing up as a, I'm, I'm now 41 year old um, Jewish woman from Houston, there are lawyers in their 20s that had never met a Holocaust survivor. One of the first clinics we had at the Holocaust Museum, our, our junior lawyers had never been there, had never met a Holocaust survivor, had never heard that story. Um, and so I, I, this might sound cliche or cheesy, but I, I do think in some way um, the reason the Jewish community tends to continue to tell those stories from generation to generation is, is they are part of our story and our history. But what we, what we did in this project was almost open that story up to non-Jewish and younger members of our community that, that didn't have that opportunity to, to get to know first generation um, Holocaust survivors and things like that. So I do think that we, sh we, we shared that story of survival and a persecution a little bit wider with this pro bono project. And the global message of never again seems very timely. So it's... Uh, it doesn't it, though? <laughs> yep. It's, it's evergreen and useful. And so yeah. broadening the, the efforts, I think, is redounding to all of our benefit. Uh, well, and recognizing that, you know, that this is not ancient history. You know, these people are still alive and sitting in front of you. So I, I do think that that was incredibly powerful, that um, this, was, this was not very long ago, and there are a lot of lessons to learn from that. So I get asked this all the time from people who want a job like yours. How do you get a job like yours? And I'm sure you get asked that a lot, too. So what advice do you have for people who really think uh, their career goal is to... Um, run a pro bono program at a law firm? Oh, I do get that question a lot. And I do love that question. Um, I feel very lucky that, that B&E was looking for um, something specific at a time where I was looking for, um, for a change and to figure out 
what to do. Um, and and I feel very proud that B&E was the first Texas-based firm to make that um, make that move. What has been disappointing is that not very many other um, Texas firms have followed. And so I get that question a lot locally in, um, in Texas. And what I say is build on your relationships with the people you know working at law firms. All of those law firms could use a pro bono counsel. They all do pro bono work. They all find it, they, most of them want to make it a bigger priority. Um, but having a lawyer in charge um, who has a, has a full-time practicing um, docket makes it really hard. They cannot stay on the cutting edge of things. They cannot manage quite all of the things that they need to manage. And so um, what I say is, and I, I said, I had this conversation just last week, who do you, where are the law firms where you, you like the most people, you feel most comfortable with their culture, and then really establish those relationships. And I think it's about pitching, the, pitching it to them, finding the right people and saying, listen, I know you have, read about their proton programs and say, I know you've done some incredibly powerful work. Um, imagine what you could do if you had someone full-time dedicated to figuring out how best to enhance that work. Um, and so I, I think it's hard because it's hard for law firms to, what we say around here, expand headcount um, you know, that are not revenue producing in their mind. Um, but I really do think the role of pro bono counsel goes a huge way for a firm's reputation, for the impact that they can make, um, for business development. We get a lot of questions from clients about our pro bono program, and we want to have good answers for those. And um, having a pro bono counsel is a very external sign of of support and commitment for a pro bono program. So, um, you know, I, I still go back to Esther's uh, business case for pro bono. When I talk to people, I said, "This is this is what you need to show people um, when you are when you are working through these relationships at law firms where you want to work." That article is still what I direct people to, and I do think that the best way is um, there. I, I look at there being two or three paths to pro bono counsel. One being one that I took, which is similar to, you know, I would say probably half of us, where we come from a legal aid background, a public interest background into the law firm to run the pro bono program. The other way, and the other half of pro bono counsel came from inside firms who really just started focusing more and more on pro bono and morphing into that role at their firm or at another firm. Um, And so those are, I think, the two ways. I don't think there's any way to become a pro bono counsel out of law school. I've had that question. Um, I, I think... There has to be some um, background in public interest um, because that's the work that you're in charge of, of um, building and enhancing and growing. Um, and But I think it can come from pro bono experience, not just from being a full-time legal aid lawyer. So I think that, you know, several years um, in doing pro bono or legal aid work um, and then trying to, to sell it to a firm that hasn't done it before. So your discussion of the business case of law firm pro bono is giving me a flashback to this amazing time we spent together in Houston at this pro bono symposium at the South Texas College of Law. College right. of Law. And that was great. And a big topic of that was getting people together to talk about a lot of things related to um, pro bono and legal services and, and the business case for, for pro bono. That was a blast. It was great to be able to come and be with you. And it's bringing back those happy memories. So <laughs> It was wonderful. And, and I really do think, and, and it wasn't, I say it all the time, even when it's not a pro bono institute podcast, 
that the business case for pro bono is as, in my opinion, as relevant today as it was when it was written. Um, I keep a printed out copy on my desk all the time. Um, and I, and I do think that sometimes, um, firm management thinks they've heard it enough, but I'm not sure anyone's ever heard it enough. I, I really do think that understanding the power of pro bono, um, commercially is really important. Um, because the power of pro bono on a passion level is all, has always been there and will always be there. That lawyers really do want to do good and they want to get out there and do it. And finding the business way for them to do it and the way it makes most sense is really powerful. When the business climate is as rocky <laughs> and turbulent, right, as it is, that just means you have to hammer it and hammer it and hammer it and update aspects of it and certain pieces of it are more vibrant now, some are less vibrant, you know, new pieces come. But as a construct and a concept, I think it's vitally important to law firm pro bono efforts. Ellen, let's end with this. Who's your pro bono role model and why? I love this question and I, and I loved that thinking about this, there are so many. Um, but Harry Reasoner, this is going to sound um, again a little cliche. Who is my boss, but is really sort of the godfather of pro bono in Texas. And he has, since his career started, has looked at it as 100% a part of his regular docket to always be doing pro bono work. He's done some of the leading pro bono work in the country on affirmative action. Um, representing University of Texas in their big affirmative action case. And he's done it all throughout his career, really from a time where it wasn't, it wasn't necessarily what lawyers did. It wasn't part of um, an expectation necessarily. And it certainly wasn't a time where we were giving billable hour credit for it. And so it has been um, a passion of his in his words, but also in his deeds. He always handles cases. He's still handling cases pro bono. Um, he became managing partner of our firm, which is and when he was the managing partner, he was the one who made sure we had billable hour credit for pro bono and all sorts of other pro bono incentives um, that have, have become the mainstay of our program. And now, after he was managing partner, he became chair of our pro bono committee, and he's also the chair of the Texas Access to Justice Commission, with carrying still a full docket of work. And, and to me, he is the example of how pro bono can become a positive and enhancement of your career um, all the way through from first year associate all the way through post-managing partner life. Um, and his passion for, um, for people in need has just always been inspiring to me. And so he wasn't necessarily the reason that I, I went into this work that I, I think I have to thank or blame my parents and grandparents for. But in this work that we do every day, seeing how um, how he has, has, has made it a part of his, his career and the impact he's had on our firm and probably all the firms in Texas um, has just been inspiring. Ellen, what a wonderful message. Thank you so much for talking with me today. It's been a pleasure discussing all the inspiring work that you do. Well, I want to thank you guys and the Pro Bono Institute for, for really having pro bono out there as, as a priority, um, making it part of every conversation that we have about law firm life. And um, I, I, I really look forward to, to more and more time working together. Thank you so much to Ellen for joining us today. If you'd like to learn more from her, be sure to attend the PBI annual conference, March 8th through 10th in Washington, D.C. She'll be leading a session that I'm very excited about. 
More information about the conference and our work can be found on our website, www.probonoinst.org. We'd love to hear from you. Send your comments, feedback, and suggestions to probono at probonoinst.org. New and archived episodes of the podcast can be found on iTunes and YouTube. Be sure to subscribe if you haven't already, and please take a moment to leave an iTunes review. We'd appreciate the feedback, and it would make it easier for other listeners to find the show. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time on the Pro Bono Happy Hour. Happy Hour.